While Israel is at war, Craig Silverman has the Colorado home front covered. Listen here for insightful views, plus interviews with powerful guests. Craig's Colorado home front. Oh my goodness, we have stumbled into an exciting Christmas 2023 show. Do enjoy it. I recorded with Bill Buckley yesterday. He's my former boss in the Denver DA's office. He was a chief deputy DA when I got to district court, head of courtroom 10. You will hear about that. But mainly, I wanted to get his views about Alan Berg. He was there, the first on the scene, when Alan Berg was killed for being a Jewish radio talk show host, June 18, 1984. Bill Buckley then went to Denver General Hospital, then to the coroner's office, watched the autopsy. Oh, my gosh. You need to hear this description. I am thinking about the death of a Jewish man on Christmas, Jesus Christ, who has a dominant religion in America, Christianity. Merry Christmas to everybody. I'm also thinking about other poor people who have been victims of violence. Harry McLean was on my last episode. Wow, what a great reaction to Starkweather. People getting shot dead. And then in Israel, the street crime, etc., that happened there. We need to cover it. I haven't talked about Israel enough. We bring back our Israeli foreign correspondent, Ken Toltz, on Christmas Day from Israel. You can watch the Broncos and the Nuggets there, but they have other things to worry about. And Ken's a little worried, but he has a Christmas message. And we talk about Trump v. Biden and the view from Israel. Who do they support over there? The probable race. I know a lot's going on in the Trump trials and litigation, especially surrounding Colorado. I want to brag about something that happened to me. I write my Colorado Sun column, and this last one was in support of the Colorado Fourth. The four justices who penned the per curiam decision telling everybody that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist, and that was found by Judge Sarah Wallace after a one-week trial on the second floor of Denver District Court. I attended. You can watch it on C-SPAN. You can hear the oral arguments, and now it's going before the U.S. Supreme Court. And I wrote a column saying that America would be well-served if the Supreme Court read the decision, followed the decision, affirmed the decision, and called Trump out for what he is, an insurrectionist. And I quoted Michael Ludig, the prominent judge, who was in Colorado three Christmases ago when Mike Pence needed to know his opinion about whether he could block the electoral account on January 6th. Judge Ludig came through for America, unequivocally stating the answer is no, and he did it from Vail, Colorado, and you will hear about it from the judge's mouth. Can you believe it? He reached out to me. The nicest letter I've ever received said my column was itself a historic document. A historic article, whatever. I remember the word historic. And I'd like to be part of history by persuading people that Donald Trump is not fit for the presidency, but he does fit Article 3 of the 14th Amendment. Judge Ludic 
LinkedIn, and I've been corresponding with him over Christmas. What a magical Christmas Eve and Christmas. And he will be my guest on episode 189, but this is episode 188, and it is great. With Ken Toltz from Israel, then Bill Buckley talking about the Jew-hating killing of Allen Berg and his incredible career. This is a Christmas special. Enjoy Craig's Colorado Homefront. Tell a friend, please subscribe, share. Five stars on Apple would be sweet. Spotify too. What did they say? Praise is comely. I don't know. That's a religious term. I'm no religious expert, but I know enough to say Merry Christmas, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I really do. It's not hard for Jews to work on Christmas because it's your holiday, and God knows we have enough of our own. Thanks for your support of this show. Enjoy. Ken Toltz and then Bill Buckley. Thank you. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey. That's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, this is a treat. It's our foreign correspondent, Ken Toltz from Israel. He's going to give us an end-of-the-year wrap-up. Something tells me a lot has happened in 2023. Merry Christmas, Kenny, but... It's probably not that merry in Eretz Yisrael. No doubt, Craig. They canceled Christmas in Bethlehem this year, which is very sad. They The last time it was canceled was during COVID. Uh, so, you know, the city is an Arab city that is close by Jerusalem. Uh, typically, you know, tourism would be a huge factor for them around the Christmas time, but Tourism has really dropped off since October 7th and the war in Gaza. And I think uh, they decided there really wasn't any point in continuing to do what they normally do on Christmas. So, yeah, it's not, not, there's not much Christmas spirit in uh, Israel this year. I can imagine tourism's a big part of the economy. Uh, what percentage of the economy? And would you, Kent Toltz, an American who made Aliyah to Israel, do you advise people to come over now? Oh, I, I definitely advise people and welcome people to come to Israel. Um, I've had uh, several good friends, one of whom you know very well, Victor Mitchell, who jumped on a plane in October with his wife, Amy, and came to volunteer to help. Uh, as you know, Craig, uh, when the after the October 7th massacre happened and Israel was getting ready to... Uh, try to find 
the Hamas murderers and the hostages that were taken. They called up 350,000 citizens who were reserve soldiers who had to leave their jobs, their homes, and their families and begin serving back in the Israel Defense Forces. So um, a lot of things that normally would be done by, uh, you know, just your normal employees could not get done. And um, we've really been blessed to have volunteers come from different parts of the world and get involved and help out. And the Mitchells came and it was just so amazing to see them. Uh, and, and this was a time when we were having rocket attacks and air raid sirens daily that were reaching Tel Aviv uh, from Gaza, which is about 60 miles uh, down the coast south of Tel Aviv. All right, I made that shidduch, which is matchmaking, literally a tennis matchmaking, because I had you on, and I knew Victor was over there, and I put you two together, and you did play tennis right after October 7th. And we did. Tell us about that battle, and if the sirens went off and you were about to win, would you stop <laughs> right away? Oh, you had to. Uh, the The... The tennis club did not have uh, a uh, a bomb shelter on on the premises, so for a long time they weren't opening because of that. And uh, then, if if their if their air raid siren took place, you were supposed to basically find find uh, some safe area to shelter. To, but if it's match point, you know, and come on, did they? Do they enforce that law, or is it just societal mooring? Get your ass out of here. Yeah, it's really it's a societal norm. Um, I, I've never seen anything like it, Craig. Uh, there, well, there really isn't anything like it in Israel, uh, where air raid sirens go off during the course of the day. People who are on in their cars driving pull over to the side of the road, get out of their cars, lay down in the in wherever they can be, that's what they're supposed to do. Um, if you're in, a, like I was in a coffee shop last week when the air raid siren went off in Tel Aviv and everybody just immediately got up and walked uh, to a, a adjacent apartment building inside the lobby downstairs into the air raid shelter that existed. Everybody looking at their phone to see what the information is from the applications that tell you where the where the firing is coming from, how many seconds you have to get into the shelter, and then you hear the sound overhead of the Iron Dome Israeli rocket interception technology intercepting the incoming Hamas rocket and blowing it out of the sky. So th that that is quite an interruption of your normal day. All right? How but, often? Uh, how often has that happened to you? Uh, it's happened. Well, it happened to me twice last week. It's probably since October 7th. Uh, I've probably myself experienced air raid sirens at least a half a dozen times. Uh, if you lived in Tel Aviv, which is just not even 10 miles south from where I live, it's almost daily occurrence. Okay, uh, that's that just, too much. That's too much. Fun raising kids there. I'm saying that's too much. I mean, oh, it, one, uh, one it, time is too much. I know, Trust me. two times, right? So I, I, I just, I'm not an Israeli Jew, but I'm a Jew. Anyway, I'm trying to figure all of this out. And 
just back to the tourism thing, because that's big industry there. And it's, it's an esteemed profession to be a tour guide. And you did talk about the Mitchells, and they're nothing but do-gooders. You know, I know Victor and Amy and their volunteerism in America and Israel, but I mean, if somebody just wants to go to the Dead Sea now and float in it, are there still people there to service that, or is it ridiculous to think about those kind of things in wartime? Uh, no, it's not ridiculous to think about those kinds of things. Um, people have really tried to get back to some semblance of a normal life. Uh, but it, since you asked about the Dead Sea, there are some many uh, large resort hotels that have been built over the years, and those hotels are now guests are holding uh, the guests of people who had to evacuate from either the Gaza uh, communities nearby or the northern border of Israel. So the numbers I have read, Craig, is there's several hundred thousand Israelis who have been evacuated and are living in hotels. And I would imagine, hotels I don't know, but, and that would be relatively safe in that area, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, well, the Dead Sea area would be very safe, uh -huh. yes. And from, from Gaza, from and, the rockets and from Gaza. And not far from Masada. Can Israel survive all of this? Well, we are surviving all of this. Uh, it's not a question of can Israel survive, it's really a question of how is Israel surviving. Um, and uh, the Israeli people are incredible, Craig. Uh, they, they've obviously never been any, through anything as horrible as what happened on October 7th. And they've never been through rockets day after day after day for 10 weeks. Uh, there's been periods of time when there were rocket attacks that are you know, essentially randomly aimed. It's not like they have guidance systems. They're aimed towards a city, uh, and there is a technology that can intercept those rockets, but it, it's not perfect technology, and sometimes a rocket gets through, and sometimes a rocket falls in a populated area, and sometimes a rocket hits a building or a car. Um, there have been a few injuries, but for the most part, uh, they're ineffective in terms of uh, causing death, but they're, not, they're effective in terms of causing trauma and panic. Uh, and disruption, disruption, economic disruption and societal disruption. So that, you know, th that's uh, the effectiveness of that particular weapon that yeah, comes from and, Hamas. And, and I can see you and me in our 60s putting up with that. But if we're in our 30s, you're fine father, you raised family. If you have your daughters there right now at age six and eight, whatever, and you have American citizenship, I don't want them to experience that anxiety every day. So what what do you say to that? Of course not. So what yeah, would you I, do? I Are people really, leaving? Uh, no, they're not leaving. In fact, hundreds of thousands of Israelis who are living abroad have returned to Israel, which is uh, you know, quite a comment on the society and on the values of Israelis that when the chips are down, they come to help. They don't leave. But that's the short-term situation. I think it's too early to predict the long-term situation uh, about what, you know, I, I just want to be really frank about this, Craig, that Israelis have not been able to fully internalize the horrific atrocities of October 7th. Um, many observers feel that we are 
still living the reality every single day since for 10 weeks. Um, and this is one of the most difficult aspects of it, that the details, I mean, you know the numbers, but the numbers really don't speak to the individual, the price that individuals paid. Uh, normal unarmed civilians whose homes were invaded on a beautiful Saturday morning by armed terrorists who were looking to do one thing, which was kill in the worst ways possible. And that's what they did. Um, and in addition to murdering people, they tortured people and they violently abducted people from the age of one year old to the age in their mid eighties and dragged them back to, to Gaza to hold them hostage. Um, and they hold the them still. You're getting me a little too worked up, Ken, because uh, I did. I, I have an instinct as an old prosecutor on these kind of crimes to go after them hard. And last week I had on Harry McLean, who wrote about Starkweather, a guy in 1958 when we were babies. He uh, he he terrorized Nebraska, home invasion kind of crap. Which happened in Israel? I brought that up to him. We've never seen this kind of home invasion crime, this stuff of nightmares to fourteen hundred innocent victims. So it it terrorizes. That's the purpose of it. And Israel is terrorized. I'm traumatized. You're traumatizing me with this call. I mean, and then Bill Buckley's on right after you talking about you know little girls getting kidnapped at Pinehurst Country Club and the United Bank murders for people just doing their job, gunned down. So, But this is on a scale in Israel that's so massive that I understand what you are saying. And yet I say, come on, you know, especially in Judaism, we said Shiva, although that got messed up, right? And then after a month, we do this. And then it's like 11 months until we really come out. Is that what it's going to be, 11 months till Israel grapples with this? Because you of all people know that time is of the essence and Bibi Netanyahu is a flawed leader. Yeah, I, I think it's important for your listeners to have uh, as candid as possible description of what it's like to be living in Israel at this stage. And you know, Craig, that I have a 45-year history with Israel. I studied here as a junior in college and lived in Jerusalem for a year back in the late 1970s. I worked on behalf of support for Israel in Washington, D.C. with APAC. Um, I worked with any number of political candidates running for office regarding why it was important for the United States to support Israel. Visited many times myself with my family and then decided to move here and become a joint, a dual citizen, hold Israeli citizenship and maintain my American citizenship. Uh, four and a half years ago. In uh, all those years and all the experiences I've had, this is unlike any that I've ever, ever seen, witnessed, or even read about. And I think that's the case for all Israelis. So it's, it's too soon to uh, real, you know, I think to make any actual conclusions about what are the long-term impacts uh, because we're still dealing on a daily basis as the stories are reported, as people are interviewed, 
as films are being shown uh, from the GoPro videos that the Hamas terrorists carried with them, uh, as the messages that have been recorded between people who were under siege were being hunted by the Hamas terrorists, and they were communicating with their family and friends at home just maybe an hour away and waiting waiting to be rescued, and rescue never came. Um, so I, I think it, that listeners should understand, uh, should get a sense for the trauma, and should also get a sense for the disruption to uh, what was previously held as common wisdom, which was the border with Gaza was secure, that the army was prepared uh, for any eventuality, and that the army would rescue or come to the rescue of people who were under attack. And none of those things happened. So uh, it's too early for people to make an assessment of what does that mean in the long run, but it doesn't mean anything good in the long run. And um, I'm, I'm myself, I'm very concerned about young families. Uh, will they still to decide that this is the place that they want to raise their you know, kids? Um, knowing that just, you know, like basically like across the street, um, there are a whole society that's raising their kids with the highest aspiration is to murder Jews in the worst possible way possible that they can think of. Because that's what we saw them do, and we know what they did, and it's it's documented, it's proven, and uh, it's it's the most atrocious attack on civ- unarmed civilians probably uh, the, the, well, I think it's what I usually say is it, it's beyond Israel's worst nightmare. Um, the idea of home invasion is bad enough. Um, if you've ever been to a kibbutz, you know that it's the most peaceful, most beautiful, most uh, calm, and uh, uh, you know it's an amazing society that they all look out for each other and they all care about each other. And the the kibbutz communities that were on the border of Gaza. To a large extent, the people who lived there were people who really pursued ways to find peaceful accommodation uh, and uh, live together with the neighbors in Gaza. And some of them even provided services like driving Gazans to Israeli hospitals in need of medical care. But what we found out is the Gazans who came to work in Israel and around those communities on a daily basis who were let in were the same people who were writing maps that Hamas terrorists used when they invaded. And uh, they made it oh so easy for Hamas to know exactly where to go when they got into a a kibbutz community where it was the least secure. I know, uh, I know, I know. And and we talked about it when you were on, and nothing's changed, and the evidence does keep coming out. But I got it, just like at Hill junior high when they'd show us Holocaust videos, and I was mortified, and I'd come out of those classrooms ready to fight anybody. I mean, you could stop it after about 15 minutes, but I have immersed myself in the Holocaust, and I know enough about what happened on October 7th that, yes, I authorized the death penalty. This is the worst. Let's go after them hard, but let's be smart. Let's not throw wild punches. And before this ever happened, we had you on because you were taking to the streets to protest Bibi. 
I know there's been a unity government since, but so many mistakes. And talk about wild punches, the killing of the three Israelis who just heroically escaped being hostages. What did that do to the Israeli psyche? Because that made me cry. I bet it did for you, too. Oh, it was, you know, a tragedy on top of a huge tragedy. Um, it was a huge gut punch when the news was reported. And again, as details came out afterwards of, you know, the, that these people had figured out a way to escape and they had figured out a way to uh, hang signs outside the window that there were hostages there, that they stripped their shirts off, they carried a white rag, and uh, the soldiers didn't give them a chance. As soon as they spotted them, they started shooting at them. Um, what I say, though, and I think this is important to remember, is you know, the, the young soldiers of the Israel Defense Forces, first of all, have never been in the situation of fighting in an urban environment that is Gaza. And secondly, their lives are on the line, and they're making split-second you know, decisions. So while in, in that case, they made a horrible decision, and it was very costly uh, to the, obviously, you know, killed right. hostages and, and, and who escaping. Are, right, and, and so it's a, it's a cost-benefit analysis. But some of this was stupid. They gave a lot of clues that were ignored. Israel is making mistakes because it's traumatized. That's the problem. You know, wild punches, and the whole world is watching. It looks like a neighborhood got bombarded on Christmas, even as we speak, and CNN is doing reports about dumb bombs, and even Joe Biden has talked about, uh, hey, you, you can't, there's some indiscriminate bombing here. And so that gets back to Bibi Netanyahu. My God, it's been a few months, and Bibi, to me, He's still a wounded animal. He cares about himself. He worries about going to jail, as he should. I think about America, which is my priority. And God forbid Donald Trump's in office and America gets attacked. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to rally around Donald Trump and his authoritarianism and his corruption. So I, I don't know. And that could happen. Well, you're right. You're I think you're right, Craig. Nobody in Israel is rallying around Bibi Netanyahu, but they rally around the Israel Defense Forces because the Israel Defense Forces, as you know, is a conscription army, and people feel uh, the responsibility, and the kids are raised feeling a responsibility to participate in the security of the country. And the you know the large majority of kids when they graduate high school go in and get trained. They don't They don't all get trained for combat training, but they do military training. And then the Israel Defense Forces assign, assigns them a job for several years and they provide their service. And then they once they leave the mandatory service, they maintain what's called reserve status and they can be called up again anytime, which is exactly what happened after October 7th. So we're talking a, about a citizen's army. Uh, it, it, of course, there's professionals but, but ultimately, and officers ultimately, isn't it civilian control? Isn't it uh, the IDF does make decisions on its own? It's controlled by civilians, the defense minister under 
the cabinet of yes. Bibi Netanyahu, who is, in effect, the commander-in-chief. Uh, not exactly the way it, it exists in the American system. And in the parliamentary system, you know, the government uh, uh, has ministers. So um, in the case of right after October 7th, uh, he spent a couple of weeks negotiating with opposition leaders who had been, uh, two of them had been former army chiefs of staff to join what he created was he called it a war cabinet for the decision making. And it's a very small group of people. And there are three former army chiefs of staff who sit on the war cabinet with Netanyahu are making these decisions about the strategy and the tactics of the Israel Defense Forces. So I, I, I think it's important to realize that we, we, we don't want, we don't support one guy making these decisions and the country feels comfortable having these three former army chiefs of staff in, in that decision making in the, in the room making the decisions. But regardless, I think what you said is, 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 uh, we are aware that mistakes are happening and Israelis are aware that war is hell. There is no clean way to do this. Um, and that mistakes are going to happen and innocent people are going to get killed and injured and lives are going to be disrupted. And it becomes a situation of how do you know when what your mission uh, that was created is achieved? And if, if it, it keeps dragging on, how do you know how to get out of it? And I think that's the quandary that, that uh, Israel is in right now. The, we're losing these soldiers every single day. And I know you talked about the uh, bombing of uh, an area in Gaza that resulted in a lot of deaths. But I don't think it's reported that over the weekend there were 15 Israeli soldiers yeah. who were reported killed. I did hear and that. 15, on the, yeah, the Times of Israel blog, I should have mentioned that. Young boys, again, I'm so angry about it yeah yeah i mean yeah five one day ten the next it's it's awful and that that's what i'm asking is 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 that cost what what is the benefit what's the end game i wish i had a great answer for that craig uh that that we could say yes this is justifying you know that but in my opinion losing one of these young people is not there's no benefit to that it's just all cost. Yeah, but the numbers but, matter. Let's face it, 1,400 is a big number. I mean, we, we talk about street crime. America's never seen anything like that. Organized street crime, home invasions, stuff of nightmares. And, and, and then in terms of who's in charge, those three, I like Benny Gantz. Who, is it okay to have a favorite in that group? Do you? Uh, actually, Gotti Eisenkot is my favorite. He's the most recent retired chief of staff. And I, I mentioned this because he's, he was recruited. He was part of the opposition to Netanyahu's government. He agreed to join in this war cabinet. Uh, about three weeks ago, his son and his nephew, both serving in Gaza, were killed a day apart. Ugh. His son and his nephew. Oh my so you can imagine that he is very aware of the risks that going to war. You no, know, but aren't, take. aren't these people on tilt through that experience? BB's got to be on tilt. I don't care how tough he is. What happened under his watch? 
I just want somebody not on tilt making great decisions for Israel. When can we expect that? You know, um, the the larger question is, what other choice do we have? Right? What Hamas did really shattered the image that most Israelis had of this country being safe and secure and having a military that was keeping the border safe and secure. That was shattered. We're still internalizing what that means. But in the meantime, we can't wait around to see what's going to happen next. What are they going to do next? We have to fight a war of self-defense. We have no option. The war of self-defense is horrible. The innocent civilians, well, this is another question, is how many of the civilians are actually innocent? And I just want to make this point that it's been documented, proven, videoed, witnesses that Gaza civilians followed Hamas into the into Israel when the well, those borders were blown open and committed some of the same atrocities that were committed by Hamas terrorists, including raping women, including dragging them back to Gaza and holding them hostage. This is Gaza civilians. So I think it's important for people to understand that there's a question in Israel about who is actually an innocent Gaza civilian. Uh, obviously, you know, children are, are innocent civilians, and nobody here is celebrating the loss of any child in war, whether it's an Israeli or a, a Palestinian. It's a, it's a horrible human tragedy. But I wonder if you know that. Yeah, I wonder if you know that Starkweather story because Charlie Starkweather was nineteen and he did those atrocities, but he had a fourteen-year-old girl with him, somebody who he met when she was twelve, and her name was Karen. And the question was her culpability. I don't know if you saw that eleven-year-old Muslim girl in Times Square telling Rabbi Shmuley Boteach on Twitter. He recorded it that he should kill himself for being a Jew. And he put the camera in her face and her parents were there. So what are you saying? Because undoubtedly these kids are getting educated to hate and kill Jews. What do we do about that? It's it's so problematic from an ethical and moral point of view. You're absolutely right, Craig. It's it's it, First of all, at least we have to be able to accept the reality that generations of Palestinian Arabs have been brought up to believe that their highest aspiration is to figure out how to kill Jews. Period. Just Jews. It doesn't matter where they live, what age they are, what they do in their life. Uh, If they live in a peaceful kibbutz and they're a three-year-old child, they were just as likely to be killed by Hamas terrorists as soldiers who were guarding a base. And they're not taught about geopolitics. They're taught about the Quran and the Hadith and the concept that Jews are apes and pigs, or, yeah, monkeys and pigs, uh, because they didn't accept uh, Muhammad as the one true prophet. They don't acknowledge their claim to Jerusalem because he flew there on a horse on a night ride a horse named Barak, and he met with Moses and Jesus, and then he went back to Saudi Arabia, and that's their claim. I mean, this is what's taught. It's a religious imperative, justified because Jews are subhuman, um, and that's a big problem, isn't it, Kenny? 
Yes, I think you're exactly right. Uh, but I think you need to add into this, Craig, that for 75 years, Palestinians have been nursing a grievance. And instead of trying to figure out how to better their lives and reach for uh, higher aspirations for their children, there's been a segment, and I don't want to paint too broad of a picture um, to say all Palestinians are this way because that's not the case. But we, we know that these people in Gaza and these Hamas people were raised with this grievance over several generations. And they instead of let's build the best, most fantastic community we can, the seafront community, which is Gaza, instead they said, let's build the most right, but, uh, but- safest tunnels so that we can kill as many Jews and then go hide under the pop- civilian population. And that's what we aspire to do. Yeah, it all changed, so how do, though. How do you Yasser, deal with that? Yasser was different. He wasn't about uh, Muslim. He made no pretense about that. Instead, he was kind of a grifter, right? He he uh, wanted his own money, built up a fortune, etc. But what changed? Because Palestinians weren't into Islamism. Well, then the Islamic Republic of Iran started getting involved, financing Hamas, hoping for that election that George W. Bush and Condi Rice authorized, and then also financing Hezbollah. And when I went over there on my one trip to Israel, I asked that general, I said, you've got new enemies, the party of God. They have religious extremism. What are you going to do? And he said, you know, we're not going to call it a holy war because those things last 100 years and everybody dies. But Am I right? Iran, I'm worried, and we're talking about what Israel needs to do to react. It needs to be coordinated because you talk about self-defense. At the same time, there's a diplomatic front. And what are you guys going to do about Hezbollah to the north? That's a huge, huge concern. Uh, Hezbollah, which it's ideologically aligned with Hamas, which, as you correctly said, are supported by Iran and ideologically um, supported by the Iranian strain of Islam, uh, which is around, you know, this part of the world. It's not the entire, but it's there is a significant number of people who follow that, uh, including in Egypt, where they're called the Muslim Brotherhood, which are the people who killed Anwar Sadat after he made a peace agreement with Israel. It was the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the Hamas is the direct descendants of those folks, and so is Hezbollah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm an Al-Zwahiri was Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, the people who carried out 9-11. I'm an Al-Zwahiri was part of the crew that assassinated Sadat, the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. So you're exactly. Let's talk about the view of the world from Israel. Vladimir Putin right now. Um, he said some bad things after October 7. What's the general regard for him right now? Well, I think Israelis, other than Joe Biden uh, and um, a, a visit here and there by some European politicians, are feeling pretty darn isolated. And you know, we're we're very much aware of these huge demonstrations that where they chant Intifada, Intifada, and from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And what they're saying is, the only good Jew in Israel is a dead Jew in Israel. And we're, we're very aware of it. So 
now that the what do you say the scales have dropped from our eyes is that the, the phrase that lawyers and I, use? I, yeah i mean i know there's a lot of um new testament there's no denying the reality eye for an eye and is that a moat in your eye well, it's always that weird thing isn't that a moat in your eye can no there's one in yours we never learned about the new testament of beth joseph did we no, no, that was not in the daily curriculum yes. or even the weekly curriculum. Uh-huh. Uh, but what, but I, 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 again, I would just say that we haven't really internalized what all of this means for the long run, but we're very aware of it. And we're also very aware of the horrific price that Gazan civilians have been paying. Very aware. And we're not, we're not pretending it's not happening. We're not celebrating it. We're not cheering it on. Uh, it's the, the humanitarian crisis of Gaza is a problem for Israel as well. Um, but we also know that this was brought on to them by Hamas and that the responsibility for bringing this horrible tragedy down upon their heads of Gazan civilians lies directly at the feet of Hamas. Israel is doing what it has to do, which is to fight a war of self-defense. They're not doing it perfectly. There, because there is no perfect in war. There's just less bad choices. And we're trusting in the former army chiefs of staff who's sitting on the war cabinet, advising Bibi and making sure he's kept within whatever parameters of decision-making that he's capable of. Uh, and we're taking it on a day-by-day day basis, knowing that the world opinion is running strongly against us, uh, and not knowing how long we have to try to continue to degrade Hamas and rescue these hostages, uh, which is really the most horrible part of the, the whole thing for Israelis, is to have the faces of all these people. We're seeing them all over the country, everywhere you look, the posters. Uh, there's rallies constantly with family members of hostages, you know, saying beseeching the government, do more, you have to do more, you're not doing enough, it's not your number one priority. Uh, so there's a lot of political pressure on the government to prioritize rescuing the hostages. You and love then, it. Go ahead. Well, I said, and then every now, every day or so, there's a, a story that comes out about one that was thought to be alive and proof that they're not no longer alive that they were killed in custody in captivity i think is the right word it's disgusting and we get numb to it and frankly i mean do you feel an obligation as an israeli to internalize each victim um you know i feel an obligation to communicate to my friends and family abroad what it's like to be living here that's and that's why i really appreciate the opportunity that you have given me um, to tell, you know, your listeners the real story of what it's like to be living here. Um, also, the appreciation that we get from abroad and any expression of support is deeply appreciated. You don't have to get on a plane to come and help, but if you do, that's amazing. You know, my brother Stephen also got on a plane and came and uh, volunteered for a week in Israel to help. Um, he raised money for. Uh, supplies for the IDF that they were not able to get as quickly as he was able to get them. He brought supplies with him that were given to IDF soldiers. Um, 
and that's just one, you know, one guy doing one thing, but there are hundreds of people who are coming to help who feel like, what, what can we do to help? Just tell us. Uh, and of, of course there's financial support, which is critical because we have all these hundreds of thousands of displaced people who are living out of a suitcase and have nothing and left their homes because their homes aren't safe to live in anymore. Um, so well, I'd love, love to say the new year's coming up and 2024 is going to be a better year ahead. At this stage, it's too early to say that 2024 is going to be a better year ahead. You are connected and the Toltz family is a legendary part of Colorado and its Jewish community. What's your view from Israel of how Colorado Jewry has reacted? Because I think we are also in shock. Um, what's your view of it from Israel? Yeah, well, Colorado Jewry has been fantastic. Um, another person who came to volunteer is Rabbi Joe Black from Temple Emmanuel. He's, he, that's your rabbi, correct? No. Rick Rhines is oh. my rabbi. I bet he's over there. Maybe he just didn't visit you. You're at, you're at Sinai. Yes. So, uh, the you know, the largest Reformed temple in Denver is, of course, Temple Emmanuel. My mom was, uh, and my mom's family were members of Temple Emmanuel. And uh, I had a chance to spend some time with Rabbi Black. Uh, he also came over, just jumped on a plane with a group of people, and they came and uh, witnessed and also volunteered in the field to help. Um, but I think the Colorado Jewish community has been amazing. They have, you know, been uh, united. They've been uh, making contributions, raising funds, and also they're fighting on the home front. Uh, because as you know, there is uh, an, a very active so-called progressive community, which has been disruptive, using uh, threats and vandalism to try to make their point. We covered it uh, extensively. Not sure exactly what their yeah. point is. I had Representative Ron Weinberg on. What an interesting episode that was. And uh, I heard that. Yeah, I thought you did a great job with him. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to take care of the home front. You know what I mean? And uh, this is a special Craig's Colorado home front episode. And I do want people to think about their charity dollars right now. What funds do you recommend, Ken? Well, I've been re recommending the emergency uh, services uh, organization called United Hatzlaha. And um, your listeners can look at that up. No, send me guys, send me a link, and I'll put it in the show okay, notes. I'll be, I'll be okay. happy to. What does Hatzlaha mean? Uh, I, I speak Hebrew like a kindergartner. What, what is that word, Hatzlaha? Hatzlaha. It's basically rescue. 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 Okay. That, yeah. yeah, it's very, it's just very straightforward. It's not it's not necessarily religiously based or anything like that. These are just you're basically EMS, you know, guys. Um, and gals uh, who jumped in their ambulances on October 7th and went down and rescued people and also uh, had to pull out, you know, and account for the horrible atrocities oh. that they found. Are these they are first, first responders? Rescuers? Yes. yes. These are okay. your, your I, very, I want to contribute first there. Responders. Yes. Let's, God bless first responders because they have to deal with trauma it's unbelievable. They've got courage. They've got a gene that a lot of people don't. I know you've got that Denver Bronco gene because we were watching it together. We were texting. That was one of the most 
memorable Christmas games of all time and maybe the end of Sean Payton's career. I don't like a carpetbagging coach. What do you think? Well, I thought it was a fun fourth quarter. Uh, I think it was about 5 a.m. Israel time when I found out that the game was on on Israel's one of Israel's sports channels through the NFL Network. So I got a chance to watch these people in orange, these bright orange. I couldn't imagine what anybody thought that was a good idea, that uniform. Uh, it reminded me of what University of Tennessee has that kind of a bright orange color. Uh, but the fourth quarter was very exciting. It was a nice distraction for about a half an hour. Uh, a great comeback, and just too bad the way it ended. Too that's, bad, so sad. That's why I'm getting this interview short, because I want to watch the Nuggets. And I'll talk about that at the introduction to the show. But uh, I really appreciate you being our foreign correspondent over in Israel, because I think you give us the straight skinny. And uh, I will put in the show notes the prior episodes when you've been here, and you came on talking about the demonstrations against BB, etc. You ran against Tom Tancredo. Your politics have been democratic, liberal, but your eyes have kind of gotten open, Ken Toltz. Would you agree this has been a game-changing year for you, too? Well, I, up, up until October 7th, this was one of the best years of my life, Craig, I have to tell you. Uh, integrating into Israel, making friends, building community, finding meaningful activities and work to do have been incredible. And uh, now I'm I'm reeling like everybody else here is, not only about what's happened in Israel, but what the response has been in the United States. Even some of my friends in politics, I've just been shocked by their response and their inability to to express actual human empathy for the victims of the massacre on October 7th and skip right over that and talk about Israel has to cease fire. Um, and as if that somehow leaving Hamas in charge of Gaza is, is a great idea and that's somehow humanitarian. So I'm fighting on the home front just like you, but I'm using technology through Twitter. Anybody can follow me at K If they want to see what I'm putting on social media, I'm trying to be informative and I'm also not, I'm not putting up with the bullshit. Uh, these people have no idea what they're talking about, and they're hurting the Democratic Party. They're hurting the alliances that have, have been built for decades between the Jewish community and progressives. Uh, and I don't know how we're going to repair that damage either. I know it. And uh, I just want to take advantage of you for a few more minutes because the Nuggets, I've got a little time. Because you are an astute, okay. you're an astute political observer, and Biden v. Trump. Do you think that's going to be the matchup? And all this Trump trial litigation that I focus on, because I'm, I think democracy is under threat in America. That would ripple onto Israel, right? And what's your perspective from Israel, uh, Trump v. Biden, and the various, you know, impeachment? Take it wherever you want, Ken, because. Uh, don't you think it matters worldwide? Well, I, I think that it's important for people to understand that when Joe Biden spoke out just a couple of days after October 7th and then a couple of weeks later got on an airplane and came to Israel, that he created a relationship with Israelis like no American president has ever created before. Um, there, there was a goodwill for Trump 
for the, the years that he was president among Israelis. That has completely disappeared. And they understand that there's a president in the Oval Office who, frankly, and he calls himself a Zionist. He believes in the right of the Jewish people to live in safety and security in their own state, their own sovereign state, which is called Israel. And he supported that for his entire life for decades. And he, he's standing shoulder to shoulder with us today. Uh, as difficult as that is, even within the Democratic Party, of, of some of these so-called progressives are going you know, the opposite direction. Um, nobody here is hoping for Trump to somehow get back into the White House. Um, but the, they're not focused on American domestic politics, as you can imagine. They're focused on Israeli, right? You know, but as trying to as it plays out, yeah, uh, I I trust Joe Biden. I trust him more than Bibi Netanyahu, frankly. And when he says Israel's gone too far, it makes me take another look because I do think he's a friend of Israel. But Donald Trump will portray himself as a better friend of Israel, a better friend of Netanyahu. And then what will the Israeli public say when? Uh, Donald Trump goes a little further than Joe Biden, because don't you think he'll try to be more pro-Israel than Biden and use that as a political tactic to woo the evangelicals in his base? Well, I think that might have been something that we would have expected, but his reactions to October 7th were exactly the opposite. And he did, he did himself no favors with talking about how smart Hamas is uh, and Hezbollah and not clearly standing with Israel. Um, so I think, I, I, think I think he'll reverse America's pivot. At a critical, yeah. This this year of 2024 is obviously a very critical year for America's future as a democracy. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm very very worried about it, and um, I'm hoping that the Democratic Party can somehow figure out a way to get behind uh, President Biden as long as he maintains that he's running for re-election, which there's no reason to think he's not. He'll be the Democratic nominee, and we have to help him get reelected, and we have to make sure that Donald Trump goes away forever. What do you mean, we, Kimo Sabi? Do you get to vote in both countries? I do. That's one of the advantages of being a dual citizenship is I get to keep my American citizenship, and I'm a registered voter in Denver. Nice. Uh, I have a, a home address in Denver. So, yes, I'm a Denver voter. How many told to family? How many told family voters will there be? I hope there doesn't. <laughs> I, I bet there's not a non-Democrat in the bunch. But what do I know? Um, I, 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 I just <laughs> think. Well, yeah. I think my brother Stephen would probably argue with you. I don't think he's a Trump supporter, but I think he doesn't consider himself a Democrat. All right, I like him better than you already. All right, because you were always way progressive. I like the way you've come around, Kenny. I always thought you were smart. You uh, have done the ultimate going to Israel. I really appreciate you being our reporter. And uh, let's stay in touch. And and uh, everybody, think about Israel and uh, think about peace, right? It's Christmas. What does that mean to you? I mean, it used to be a boring day, but now there's basketball, there's football, there's fresh podcasts like mine. And I think it's a bit of a service, don't you, Ken, that two Jewish guys could work on Christmas in a way to just provide entertainment and information to the public on a week that's otherwise full of repeats? 
Well, and I think, Craig, you've said it very well. Uh, it's also a sad, sad, sad day. And we, we don't wish that this type of atmosphere is repeated again for next Christmas. We'd much rather be able to celebrate and to let uh, the Christians of Israel have a wonderful Christmas celebration in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem and stand with them as, as a goodwill and, and a peaceful situation. It's just very sad that this year we can't do that. Um, uh, the good news is it's, the weather's beautiful. It was 72 degrees on the coast of Israel today, so I'm not missing the Denver winter. Um, and I'm wishing you guys uh, a, a wonderful holiday, uh, a great, well, still Christmas Day there. So uh, for those who celebrate Christmas, a happy Christmas and a wonderful, healthy, happy new year as well. And I just want to thank you for giving me this opportunity, Craig. I really appreciate it. And as you know, I don't hold back. I tell it like it is, as I see it, and uh, and let the chips fall where they may. You're the best, Kenny. Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you, Craig. Okay. Best to your, your family. Same. I got to go watch the Nuggets. See you. Bye. Good luck, Nuggets. Bye-bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, Bill. Yeah. And I'm with Bill Buckley. It's Christmas Eve, 2023. I just turned 68. How old are you, Bill? 83. I'll be 84 in a couple weeks. Okay. So Bill was my chief deputy. I say that because he trained me. I have superb respect for him because he taught me so much about being a prosecutor, but he did it 
a lot longer than me, and I was just a junior deputy when Alan Berg got killed June 18, 1984. You were already a prominent chief deputy DA. What do you remember about Alan Berg? Um, for whatever reason, and I don't remember, I was on the street in my DA car and I heard the call come out. And so I went, I was not very far from Alan Berg's residence. So I, when I pulled up, the first uniform car was arriving and he was slumped over in the front seat of his car with the door open and, uh, had been shot numerous times, uh, then the crime lab guys and the homicide guys got there. And ultimately, then the, the uh, morgue attendants took him to the morgue. And so I went to the coroner's office, and they were uh, uh, undressing him uh, to look for wounds. And the thing that, that hit me hard, and I'll never forget the sound, was he was laying on a metal uh, um, you know, table of some kind. And when they lifted him up to take his clothes off, uh, bullets started falling out of his clothing and hitting the metal. And so you could hear this sound of those slugs, you know, falling. And, and it, was, it was an ominous uh, feeling. And I, I really don't remember exactly how many times he was hit, but it was numerous times. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that sound. And 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 uh, and seeing that happen. So, did you know Alan Berg? Were you aware of him as a radio host? I didn't know him personally, but I was very well aware of him, and I used to listen to him once in a while. And he was pretty, uh, uh, you know, uh, outspoken, and uh, that was his style. So you realized this might have been a targeted assassination, or what did you think when you got to the scene? It. Uh, it it seemed like overkill to me, and and um, and and yes, I I did uh, uh, consider right away that it was targeted, um, and and I really wanted our office to prosecute the case, but uh, some people that were in a different position, including the the DA, I don't know if it was Norm or I think it, it was, was Norm. Norm. It was Norm early on, and it was Jeff Bayless, Dave Heckenbach, other right. chief deputies. Again, I'm a junior guy watching it all happen. But let's go back to the horror of you being the first on the scene. Did you ever recreate how long after he was shot dead that you arrived? Well, I, I think some neighbors had reported the sound, and uh, the call came out, so I... I think I probably was there within 15 or 20 minutes of the time he had been shot, but that's just uh, an estimate. What about gunpowder? Could you smell it in the air? I don't recall that, but it was, uh, I believe it was uh, chilly out. Um, and uh, so I, uh, um, I didn't want to get too close to the car uh, when I first arrived because I didn't know what the scene was going to entail and wanted the crime lab and homicide guys to document everything. So, but I just uh, observed him and, and realized who it was. And um, then they all started arriving. How close did you get to Alan's corpse? 
probably 15 feet away. Were you frightened? Did you consider the possibility that the murderers were still hiding behind a tree or whatnot? Uh, That thought never even entered my mind. But you are known for carrying a weapon yourself. When I was a chief deputy, I didn't do that, but we had the right as peace officers to do it. And when I had a chief deputy car eventually, I didn't have lights or siren. So when you came to the scene, I assume no lights or siren. Or maybe Bill Buckley had a special vehicle. I think I had a red spotlight on the car, but I mean, I didn't use it to get there because I wasn't that too far away. Uh, Is this before they had homicide duty? I mean, you were renowned for showing up in murder scenes. You well well acknowledge that and take credit for that, right? I was one of the guys that suggested to Dale Tooley in the mid-70s the thought of having uh, a a deputy, uh, homicide qualified deputy at all murder scenes. And so we met with uh, Chief Art Dill and proposed that, and uh, he said, let's try it. And uh, I know initially the homicide guys were not real thrilled about that, having some lawyer looking over their shoulder, but we started the program, and and uh, it went for many years. I don't know if it still exists today under Beth McCann, but... It, probably, it does. I've talked to some of her chief deputies, yes. I yeah. probably covered 200 murder scenes. Boy, I probably did a a few dozen, but you would carry the police radio and a pager, and I'm wondering if you had that the night Alan Berg got shot, or you just, you are one of the guys who probably always had a a police radio. Yes, I I had a portable police radio most of the time, and, and I was one of the guys that opted to carry a gun whenever I was on call. So in retrospect, that was the time you really needed to have your gun ready because those guys were scouting out that location from behind trees. How involved did you get after that? Did you want the case? I know certain homicides, I'd respond and hope or try to make it happen that I was the prosecutor. What about you? Uh, I would have relished the the chance to prosecute that case, but... uh... I wasn't involved in the decision-making process. What do you recall about how it went down after that? Because, uh, and and let's not speed up this story, because there you are at the morgue, which is, I recall, is a a building adjacent to Denver Health, or what we used to call Denver General Hospital. Right. See, you always took being a prosecutor to a further greater extreme, because I did not... Uh, attend any autopsies. How many did you? Uh, I'm guessing I probably attended 25 or 30 autopsies, but then they started, uh, the defense started uh, endorsing the deputy DAs who were witnesses to the autopsy, probably just to keep them from being involved. And so pretty soon they uh, they made a determination at the coroner's office that they weren't going to have um, people from the DA's office or outside people uh, witnessing them for fear that they would become witnesses in the case. I've got you to thank for that because I don't feel like I missed much. I read about the autopsies, but if I wanted to do that stuff, I would have been a doctor. 
Did you right. like it, Bill? I mean, or did it make you sick? It didn't make me sick, but I uh, always uh, thought it was pretty uh, gruesome process. But I was fascinated uh, with how the docs did their job to, uh, 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 you know, to to determine the cause of death. Um, and I was invited one time, um, along with one of the coroner's doctors, to go over to Porter Hospital. Um, they had a, a, a little boy who had been in foster care, and he had been abused and was brain dead. Uh, and so, but he was under the care of Department of Social Services, and so they wanted to... Uh, preserve his organs and and uh so um i'm trying to remember that there was a famous Holy cow, you're getting to me just after i said that these stories get to me and i think there's some karma bill because along the way how many times have you been cut on now have i been what have you been cut on surgery since you watch the scalpel go into so many corpses i mean Bill Buckley is a tough guy. You've survived leukemia and God knows how many other maladies and you put up with doctors doing this, that, and the other to you. Yep. Did you ever think that's kind of, I don't know, karma? I don't know. I don't but know. I, was... I mean, did these cases, I had Harry McLean on talking about Starkweather and the emotional toll and what case gets to you? Is it the one at Pinehurst, the James Lowe, that little girl? I mean, is there, are there cases that really stand out to you? Well, of course, the, the United Bank case will always be a sore spot for me. But the United, I mean, the, the, the Lowe case from the country club, uh, uh, I've been to four different parole hearings with the mother of the little girl. Sue and we've managed. He was technically eligible to be released in 2004, and the last time we were there was in 2000, and he got another five-year setback. So in 20, uh, not two, 20, yeah, 2000 in okay, 2025. Yeah, yeah, and the neat thing is, yeah, we've talked about this on my podcast, and it's cool. And I remember, back, yeah. yeah, he's coming back up, and that's why you're living. To oppose him, right? Because what he did to that little girl. Yeah, and was, you, you was, remember my wife used to swim at Pinehurst, so this is personal right. to me. So it was pretty, pretty outrageous case. Anyway, here's the outrageous case: it's the United Bank murder, and I just had a book author call me because I was involved early on because Mike Little was on homicide duty when that United right. Bank murder happened. Right? He had the phone and the pager. And he yes, responded, he and then Norm Early came by because he was in the middle of running for mayor, and two days later he lost Wellington Webb, as I recall, right? Meanwhile, Correct. there was a murder mystery, and Mike, because he was on homicide duty, was working with John Priest, a lead detective, and all of DPD that was trying to solve this crime, and it went on for weeks, and then Mike Little said to me, Craig, there's going to be a death penalty case. We're going to win it like Frank Rodriguez, the way we got a death penalty on him, you and me. I know the case, but I have to go to Marine Reserve duty, and let me fill you in. And so he did, 
and it was about that guy who turned out not to be the right guy, and all of a sudden it switched to James King, and John Priest had come in to me with search warrant, arrest warrant requests, and we did it. We worked our ass off, and none of that got attacked because I wrote it with John Priest and the FBI, and I thought the guy was guilty. I was there when he got arrested. I authorized, what was it, Lieutenant Graham came out with what he thought were the shoes that were the smoking gun. And I said, arrest his ass. I was there when we went to the judges. Anyway, I wanted to keep that case, but Norm was pissed about that. And he was a little vulnerable politically. And he and I have talked about it before he died. And it was assigned to you and Lamar. So I... I'm not here to talk about United Bank murder, but I'm wondering if after responding to this horrible assassination of Alan Berg, you're there, you're at the autopsy. You wanted to be the prosecutor just like, you know what I mean? Did you have that feeling? Sure. I I thought we should file it, and I, I would, would have been anxious to uh, be responsible for prosecuting it. So why didn't it happen? Did you lobby for it? Did you advocate? I met I met with some of the homicide guys and talked over the evidence with them, and I was convinced that we had a fileable case. And so um, I mentioned it uh, to the boss, but uh, I, he was listening to s- other people, and I don't know who ultimately decided, uh, you know, not to file it or what went into that, because I was not included in the decision. But do you remember what Norm said, which I thought was shameful? And I loved Norm early. He did so many great things for me. But this was kind of personal, because I figured out that some neo-Nazis got together, decided to come to Denver to kill a Jewish guy to make a statement. And uh, he was a guy I listened to on the radio. I didn't know him personally. Sometimes he aggravated me, probably like you, like he did all of Denver. But with that kind of crime and for it not to come to the city and county building, and then Norm said there were security concerns at the city and county building that we weren't capable, really, of handling the risk. And I thought, oh, that disappointed me. How about you? Do you remember that? Um, vaguely, and I didn't agree with it at all. But um, And then there were evidentiary excuses, right? That somehow the federal rules of evidence would make it easier for it to be prosecuted as a RICO case up in the great Northwest. And they cited rules of evidence. And do you remember that? Yes, I do. Um, when you mentioned the security, it brought back a memory. that There was a shooting in the hallway on the fourth floor outside of courtroom 10 where I worked when these guys tried to help a friend escape from the sheriff's deputies. And he actually, this guy actually got loose and ran down the steps near, near courtroom 10 to the third floor and was running down the hall, of course, in jail garb. And there just happened to be a couple of detectives down on the third floor for some reason and spotted him running and grabbed him. But uh, uh, it was after that incident that they put in the, uh, you know, the security that they have now where you all have to go through uh, a metal detector. Was that a guy named Nikki Kanoki? 
Is that the guy? Or was that a different escapee? What year are you thinking about in courtroom yeah. 10? You know, I just... It's all right. Do you remember got, who your two deputies were during Judge Fullerton courtroom 10 at one time? Well, at one time I had uh, Kira Jenner who went on to the U.S. Attorney's Office and Leslie Hansen. I had two ladies working with me and they were they were great and uh, both of them very, very competent uh, prosecutors. Both great friends of mine. But I was fishing for me and Ritter. Don't you remember the governor of Colorado being your deputy? Yeah, for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I had a lot of people flow through there. Do you remember me in courtroom 10 and you training me in front of Fullerton? I do. do. Yes. And we used to call him Fufu. uh, Now tell him why, because that was kind of a term of endearment, because we got to speak last a lot of the time, but he could fluctuate right, in his opinions. Whoever got yeah. to convince him last, maybe if you just, you just kept talking because then you had a good chance of getting him to change his mind. So so why didn't you do that with Norm Early about the Allen Berg thing? How far did the mat did you go? And why was it assigned somehow to, wasn't Jeff Bayless and Dave Heckenbach running the economic crime unit or something like that? That sounds familiar. Uh, I thought it was mostly Heckenbach that was the influencer on not filing. Uh, that was that was what I understood. And um, uh, Norm really didn't want to to debate the the issue. I you know I what talked about to him you about and my what feelings. about what about you and Dave Heckenbach? You were a senior. To him, he was a chief deputy at that point, but you'd already been one for about 10 or 20 years. I don't know. When did you start on the job? I started in September of 71. Okay. So you're senior to Dave Heckenbach. Did you ever go up to him and say, hey, Dave, you know, this no. is done? No? No, because Norm had pretty much made up his mind, and I didn't... Uh, didn't feel like I was going to make any headway. Don't rock the boat. I guess. So any other memories of Allenberg? You've been so kind to share these vivid memories. Did you ever have thoughts as the federal proceeding unfolded? I mean, Norm may have been right. Those guys did die in prison. I think Pierce is dead, Skitari. Uh, the perpetrators got long sentences for their many crimes, of which Allenberg right. was one. So maybe it was smart in retrospect. Maybe you and I are, you know, just too... I mean, it saved money. Maybe there would have been security problems. So maybe Norm was right. Don't think so. Why? Because it should have been a local case since it was a murder in Denver. And and a death penalty case. Yeah. Bruce Pierce was a prior felon. He was the trigger man. Of course, I death qualified a jury twice in my career and uh, never got it. I always thought that... uh, the Denver jurors were pretty liberal. Um, I actually got uh, an 11 to 1 vote for death on Michael Tennyson, who had killed two guys he, he met at the uh, 
Country Western Bar in Aurora, the Stampede. And then when we got him into custody, we found out he was wanted for a triple homicide in La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, eight weeks earlier. Uh, uh, I flew to La Crosse with Randy Gordonier, and we uh, got familiar with their case and got the bullets from their victims and brought them back, and all five people were killed with the same gun. So I definitely. What year? What year was that that he perpetrated those crimes? I vaguely remember. I think it was when I was real young. You were doing that in the office. I mean, we could look it up, but it was probably around eighty seventy nine. You bring up Randy Gordon there. What a great guy! He was my investigator for a while too. Randy uh, gone too soon, but yeah, he, I was the one that hired him. I interviewed people for that job and. He just uh, was at the top of the list, and I I couldn't wait to get him in there. And he and I worked a lot of cases together. Yeah, like Michael Tennyson. And the only way I can top you, that 11 to 1 is sort of sweet, but it's kind of like, you know, leaving one pin in the 12th frame when you're bowling for 300. Mike, the late great Mike Little and I did achieve that 12 0 against Frank Rodriguez. And you probably touched the Rodriguez brothers' cases because those guys were prolific criminals before I got to the office. What do you well, remember about that while I'm bragging about that verdict? Well, I, I do know that when I was, uh, that Frank Rodriguez had received a letter from James Lowe the, on the Pioneers Country Club case. Right. Uh, and he was in jail for something else, not, not for, uh, the Martelli case yet, but he was in jail and Lowe had sent him this love letter because they had had a relationship in Buena Vista. And, uh, oh, so, yeah. When you say the Martelli case on November 14, 1984 at Fifth and Broadway in the afternoon, Lorraine Martelli, age 54, got carjacked and then drove around, raped, robbed, stabbed yep. 28 times, stopped in the back of her Monte Carlo and they drove off to party Denver cops figured it out just uh, as the 10 o'clock news was breaking. And uh, through a combination of forces, I ended up being the prosecutor a year and a half later because Mike Kane went to Pennsylvania after right. prosecuting Chris Rodriguez. So it's just kind of random how we end up with cases, right? It's kind of the sure. luck of the draw. But by showing up all the time, Bill Buckley got more than anybody. And we were talking before you agreed to do this taping. I think you have the record for most murder prosecutions, but Mitch Morrissey said maybe it's Henry Cooper, who I worked with, did cases with, and played a ton of basketball. So I'm going to have to get Coop on. But I'm going to say it's you until I can get Coop to per provide proof. How many murder trials do you think you were uh, the prosecutor on? 55. Five, five, double nickel. Yep. You take a lot of pride in that, and you should, Bill Buckley. Thanks for doing this on Christmas. I, I really bet. appreciate it, and uh, I just think it's important to document the truth. Like the United Bank case, you really want to know that that son of a bitch did it, right? By the way, I th I think I dropped off one of my CDs, my music CDs, for you once. Did you ever get that? Sure I did. Okay. Love your music. You know that. 
you, you know, and, and I always think of you because Walt Conley, right? He's your buddy. Yeah. And he used to have you sing there. I used to go try to pick up chicks while you were singing, and you were trying to pick them up too, but let's not talk about that. I was, True. anyway. But Walt Conley was the guy who Bob Dylan ripped off. When yes. he stayed on Colfax playing the satire. So I know your stories, Bill. I worked with you. I've had you on the radio. I've had you on my podcast. But we never really got to talk about Alan Berg this specific like this. And I'm trying right. to document what happened. And, oh, my God, for you to be first on the scene. How long after you were there do you think the cops showed up or other first responders? Well, uh, there were several uniformed uh, cars that arrived simultaneously with me, uh, and then it was probably another 15 or 20 minutes later before the crime lab arrived and the homicide detectives started coming. Well, let me get it out of you now. You said it was cold. What was your vehicle? Do you remember what kind you would have driven? Not for sure. All right, and would you have parked... uh, several houses away ideally to not you know for precaution or what was your attitude i parked along the curb uh uh at the at like one house over it wasn't very far away that where i parked on adams street i believe that was the street. yeah that's yeah. the street mid-block adams between yep. 1400 block and colfax so were you correct were you headed north toward Colfax when you parked? Uh, no, I think I was headed south, but that's that's not for sure. I just do you remember how the Bluebird Theater kind of illuminates the Colfax side of Adams? Yes. Do you remember that being on? Because I remember when we were doing the search warrant at uh, James King House. In your case, the United Bank murder. I remember the fireworks going off across Sixth Avenue at the Jefferson County Fairgrounds because he lived on Indiana Street, didn't he? Yes. In unincorporated yeah. Jeffco. So yes, that's the only reason I think of Indiana Street because I was there that night. I think it was July third of what year did that crime happen? It was in nineteen ninety one because Norm was running for mayor then, or I think so. It sounds like it. Anyway, you're the guy who knows all the facts, and you've done presentations on that case, which people are writing books about, and I love it that you are cooperating. Who do you want to play you in the movie? I don't care. Come on, man. (laughs) You were in show business. Just before we leave, what was your biggest show business gigs? Well, I got to sing in Carnegie Hall in New York. That was fun. Unbelievable. When was that, and with who? It was in 1963, and I was in the Army, and I was a member of the Army Air Defense Command Chorus, which was a 25-man chorus. All right. Well, that's a group effort. It's not quite as impressive, but you were a solo act when I saw you a lot of the time. So what was your biggest solo performance, or you'll never forget? And try to keep it PG. I I worked at at the College Inn for Gordon Friednash for— during my senior year at Regis, I was singing at night and going to school during the day, and that was probably the most fun. It was almost obscene getting paid for having so much fun. How many people would be in there? Oh, it was a small room behind the main bar, and it probably seated 60. And and 
there were nights when people came in and sat on the floor because there were no seats available at the tables. And what is your favorite song that everybody requests and everybody loves? Well, Baby the Rain Must Fall was was one of them, but uh, my favorite song was by John Denver, and it was called Perhaps Love, and it's it's just a, a great song, great lyrics. Did you ever meet John Denver? I did not, no. Me neither, although I played golf at Fitzsimmons with his father, who was a, no. a Colonel Duchendorf or Captain, whatever, he played it. Fitzsimmons, and uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. He was a nice guy. Those were the days. Fitzsimmons is gone. So many things. John Denver's gone. His father. But Bill Buckley endures. How long <laughs> you can you keep this going? And I didn't mean to make fun of your health concerns. I admire you because look how strong you sound, and your memory is sharp. And seriously, people have counted you out because... We follow you on Facebook. It's give me advice. I like to talk to older guys about aging. How do you do it? Just keep, just keep chugging ahead. And you're looking forward to the Broncos, just like I am. The things that oh, I've yeah. loved my whole life, the Broncos, and you know I love the Nuggets. So that really excites me. And I got to find ways to watch them on my laptop. Whatever, I'm gonna get got- it done. I got to be friends with John Elway through his previous uh, wife, Janet Elway, when they were still married. Uh, Susan Fisher Beckwith came to Denver to open a store at the Cherry Creek Mall, and she had grown up next door to Janet Elway's family back in Seattle, and she was followed home from a Safeway store and and, and shot in the head and murdered him. Uh over her red Jeep Cherokee that this guy wanted. But anyway, uh, Janet Elway was devastated. She had, uh, Susan had been over to their house two or three times in the three weeks she was in town. And so Janet sat through part of the trial and later helped me raise money for the Denver Victim Center. So through Janet, I got to know John. And when, when I retired, uh, I received a eight by ten signed picture by John. I don't know how he even knew I had retired, but it just says "Good luck in your retirement, John Elway." Man alive, that's something else. Since since you're telling great stories, I do want to put this on my podcast. Is that okay? Sure. All right, and I want you to say why. I think you have a special relationship with victims. Part of it was the culture of our office. Don't you take pride in that? That we took care and we loved our victims even you know what i mean we and and that was kind of taught to me and i've had tragedies happen in my life but to be a relative of a murder victim is really rough and you went through that and uh just talk about your sibling because i know that's affected your life yeah my brother uh uh, ted was stabbed uh, 40 times uh at and that when you mentioned twenty eight times on Martelli, that that really uh, rings true with me because he was stabbed multiple times by inmates at the Arizona State Penitentiary where he was working as a correctional officer. He and another young uh, rookie guard were both killed at the same time. And uh, I uh, I flew to Arizona the next morning 
and it was the second year of my uh, tenure in the DA's office. And so the, the warden, because he knew what I did for a living, allowed me to go into the cell block because all my siblings wanted me to find out everything I could. And I never should have done that in retrospect. I'll never get that picture out of my mind because he was killed on the ground floor and the other guy up on the second level. And so when I went in the ground floor and saw blood everywhere, I knew it belonged to my brother. And uh, so in retrospect, even though I went to many murder scenes, that's one that I'll never forget. And uh, it it had a dramatic effect on me. And that's why I stayed 26 years instead of I, when I first started, I was going to stay for five years and then go into private practice. But he was killed in that. That was a determining factor for me staying. And, and one of the things that it did for me was to share the story with the families. Whenever I got a new case, I would tell them uh, people might say they know how you feel, but they can't if they've not been there. But but I've been there. And so I would share that with the families. And it created some friendships and relationships that still exist today. And that's so important because if the government doesn't respond appropriately when an atrocity like that happens, then we will have a total breakdown because people will take it into their own hands. Don't you think? Yeah. God bless you for what you did. And it doesn't get easier. And I keep referencing Starkweather by Harry McLean. And I frankly had my fill of going to murder scenes and prosecuting murder where my wife watches more of those gruesome Dateline shows than I do. I don't know about you, but I kind of had my fill. But with Starkweather, it was set in 1958, and as bad as it was, he tells you right about it at the start. And you say, well, these people would have been dead by now anyway. You know what I mean? It's like... uh, It doesn't make it easier, but the thing about murder is it ends a life that should have gone on for so much longer. And that's that little girl. What's her name at Pinehurst? Let's let's say her name. Michelle. Michelle Conley. She was 11. Yeah, I mean, come on. She had her whole life ahead of her. She's buried in in the cemetery in Littleton. And... uh, her grave is actually just a few feet in from one of the small streets that go through the cemetery. And this is a true story. There were a couple times in my career when I was having doubts about whether to go on or not. I, my, my wife at the time wanted me to quit because she knew that the violence was not good for me. But I would drive into that cemetery and, uh, and stop by her grave and and stand there and and you know think and uh, she was born on St. Patrick's Day and on her gravestone, which is in the shape of a cross, it says "Our Little Shamrock." Oh my God! Yep. And then on Thanksgiving, I was getting ready to do the Frank Rodriguez case, and my. Best buddy Eddie Duman came over. I think we were going to watch football, but during halftime, we threw the football in Fairmount Cemetery, which was near my condo where a lot of cops lived, 8600 East Alameda, and we 
jump the fence. I went out for a long one. I catch it, and I look down. Unbeknownst to me, the grave of Lorraine Martelli. I had no idea she was buried there, and I'm just about to start the trial. Wow. Yeah, that'll wake you up. I'll tell you what. uh, You've been so nice, and it's Christmas, and I I think a little Michelle at age 11, and I think about Jean-Benet Ramsey on Christmas, who... No matter what you think about the sensationalism, came down to a little girl killed in her own home on Christmas. If you yeah. don't care about that, what do you care about? True. What do you think about that case? Did you ever touch it at all? No. Um, uh, they had a number of DAs from different jurisdictions on a little. Uh, commission that they put together in Boulder, but I wasn't one of them. I wasn't invited, but, uh, you know, they were all trying to brainstorm and figure out who did it. And, um, yeah. And there are a lot of times people should have come to you. I have an image of you and Tom Haney working together a lot. And Tom Haney was the lead detective who ended up interrogating Patsy Ramsey. Do you remember that? Then you work a lot with Tom Haney. Yes. See, I have those memories. I have those neurons still working. I just love that we had this conversation. And on Christmas Eve, Bill Buckley, can't thank you enough. You're welcome. You guys have a great holiday. All right, buddy. Take care. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Hey, now, I told you that was a great show coming your way, and I cannot thank Bill Buckley enough. I cannot thank Kent Toltz enough. I cannot thank you enough for listening on Christmas or Christmas week. It's fresh, timely. Judge Ludig coming up on the next episode this Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Colorado time. Tune in. Enjoy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Craig's Colorado Homefront.